School is in full swing now, which means it's also dog ate my homework season. And here's a new one for you. There's a new study out about how to fake a positive rapid COVID test using soda. Actually, all soft drinks, energy drinks, alcoholic beverages, and carbonated mineral water can get you those two pink lines. Don't try it at home unless you really need a few days alone with Netflix. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ruth Reader. Here are a couple of headlines I'm watching this week. After an outbreak of Ebola was reported in Uganda this week, the Biden administration said Thursday that travelers coming back to the U.S. from the region would be redirected to airports where they can be screened for the virus and warned doctors to be alert for potential cases in the United States. During the last outbreak between 2014 and 2016, more than 11,000 people died worldwide and 11 were treated in the United States. Spending on pandemic-related TV ads has spiked recently. Between September 28th and October 5th, Democrat and Republican candidates and special interest groups have doled out $5 million on campaign ads invoking the pandemic, up from $2 million the week prior, according to Ad Impact. And finally, it's been around 100 days since Roe was overturned. Megan Messerly is here to talk about how many abortion clinics have closed. There's this new report out from the Gumacher Institute. They're an abortion rights advocacy and research group. They put out this report that shows that 66 clinics have stopped offering abortion services since Roe v. Wade was overturned in June. So of those clinics, 40 of them still offer non-abortion services, so like other reproductive health services, while 26 have shut their doors entirely. Among them is the Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi, which is the abortion clinic that obviously was at the center of the Supreme Court's case. They've closed their doors. They closed their doors back in July with plans to move to New Mexico. I was going to ask, how many of these providers are that are closing are moving to other states or to border regions? Yeah. So the Mississippi Clinic, there's another one right now. North Dakota's abortion ban has temporarily been put on hold. But the clinic there, uh, Red River, they had made plans to move across the border. So they're in Fargo, North Dakota, and they had made plans to move just across the border to Minnesota. So a lot of clinics have looked at, okay, you know, how can we offer these services in other ways in another state? But there are also providers who are just making the transition to no longer providing abortion services at all. Do we have any sense of what the impact is so far of these closures? Yeah. So obviously we don't know like on a clinic by clinic basis, um, some of the numbers, but just looking at the group of states where abortion is currently banned in almost all cases. So there are 14 states um, that ban abortion starting at conception and a 15th Georgia, uh, which bans abortion starting at the detection of fetal cardiac activity, which is usually around six weeks of pregnancy. So the 14 states were responsible for about 126,000 abortions in 2020. And then Georgia, that 15th state, was responsible for about 42,000 abortions. So again, there's some question of, are those abortions not happening? Are people who would have obtained abortions at those clinics getting them some other way by either traveling across state borders, by obtaining medication abortion? Um, I think that's, you know, the big unknown, but we are looking at more than 100,000 coming up on 200,000 abortions that were provided in these states previously. Yeah, there was a study that I was looking at that's an older study. It's from, I think, 2010 to 2014. And they looked at sort of how various laws would impact 
health, basically whether or not people can access abortions and then do. And it seemed that then it really was creating a barrier. And so, you know, women were not able to get abortions. But I do really wonder how that has changed since there is now such this proliferation of online pharmacies and and just like online healthcare providers. Exactly. And we've seen abortion funds be very readily willing to connect people with options, even if it's out of state, if it's um, an online organization like Aid Access. Um, you know, these funds have really been working to connect people in states where abortion is prohibited um, with other places they might be able to obtain an abortion. But I think, you know, we'll still have to wait for that data to see exactly how, um, you know, this landscape shakes out over the next several months. You know, speaking of the states and movement there, one of the things that's so fascinating to me is the rise of the shield law. Shield laws basically look to protect abortion providers in states where abortion is still legal from states that might, you know, want to prosecute them for working with a patient who is originally from their state or a resident of their state where it's banned. An interesting thing that I've been hearing about is shield laws that seek to protect providers who are giving services over telehealth to people in states uh, where it's banned. I'm so curious. Have you heard anything about that or do you know anything about that? Yes. So I know at the end, um, sort of the end of the legislative sessions last spring, you know, we saw a lot of those types of bills be introduced and passed in some states. I think the telehealth question is a really interesting one. You know, I know from talking to um, abortion groups and abortion funds who are sort of preparing to help folks access abortions in, in a post-row paradigm that, you know, they were sort of telling people, you know, yeah, like, don't, you know, don't say what state you're in, right? Um, you know, try, try not to disclose um, uh, those kinds of things to help people be able to actually access abortions. But I think it's a really interesting question. And I think talking to some legal experts, we're going to see how those shield laws play out in court. Obviously, protecting providers. We've seen governors issue executive orders saying they won't participate in extradition requests or things like that. So really setting up these potential state conflicts. And we haven't seen any of those come to bear yet. But I I think it's going to be an interesting question to see sort of how those play out if you do see a state try to prosecute a provider who provided an abortion to someone out of state. Yeah, a weird and sort of fascinating time. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Megan. Thanks so much. Now, before we go, White House reporter Adam Kankren has been writing about Operation Warp Speed 2.0. Okay, so if you remember way back in 2020, there was this thing called Operation Warp Speed. And the whole idea was to develop vaccines, COVID vaccines and COVID treatments as fast as possible, really faster than we've ever done in history. Of all of the kind of chaos that came out of the Trump era, this was like the one big success on the COVID front. We got vaccines that were 95% effective in less than a year. And it was great, it was a huge rollout, and everything that we've done from then has kind of stemmed from that. And Adam has agreed to take PulseCheck's 60-second challenge to catch us up on where Operation Warp Speed is at today. And start the timer. So fast forward now to 2022, we're dealing with all these different variants. The Biden administration wants to do the same exact thing. They said it worked back in 2020. Let's do it again. And we'll develop all these great next generation vaccines and treatments. The problem, they don't have any money to do it. And Congress, specifically Republicans, will not give them the $8 billion that they need. So it hasn't really gone 
anywhere. And that's a problem because it means that if the virus continues to evolve, we could end up in a situation where suddenly the vaccines and, and treatments we do have don't work anymore. Did I do it? The question now is whether we can really make any headway. I mean, this has been a the standoff over over money has been going on since March and neither side has really been willing to give. The Biden administration says, look, we need money to keep the covid response going. The pandemic, despite what the president said a few weeks ago, is not over. Um, Republicans on the other side say are saying, you know, you've already gotten trillions of dollars. Why should we now give you, you know, another eight billion or 10 billion or essentially when does it stop? And until that standoff is resolved, until there is, you know, more money of, of some, you know, some measure, we're in a difficult situation where the research that needs to be done to develop better vaccines and more treatments, uh, it's just not happening. And at the same time, we're seeing global competitors like China and India continue to push ahead with a lot of government funded research. They now have these intranasal vaccines, right, which are the kind of the next evolution, hopefully, in vaccines that will stop transmission and not just serious illness. And we are here in the U.S. Uh, after having led the vaccine push in 2020 and 2021, we're just at a standstill. So uh, a bit of a scary moment for for uh, on the scientific side. Uh, politically, though, a lot of the same from what we've seen since March. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese is our producer. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of Audio at Politico. I'm Ruth Reeder. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting, Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Pulse Check is taking Monday off, but we'll see you back here on Tuesday. Thanks for listening.